All right. Part 31. Part, part 31. Part 31. A long gospel. Left all my stuff in here. All right. We're on thesis number three. We really don't have much left of it. We've kind of covered everything. Uh, this morning we did, uh, we, we took a little detour. We worked on Colossians chapter three, kind of in connection with thesis number three. And then the second hour, um, we kind of, the, well, well, Corinthians is what the book wanted us to do. The book wanted us to go to Second Corinthians. So we didn't take a detour there. However, we took a detour in the sense that they basically were trying to impose, in a sense, the idea on preaching that you have to cover both of these every time you preach, and you know I oppose that. People online did find it humorous that basically they heard a sermon where a pastor was saying he wants to get rid of all sermons in Christianity, <laughs> Okay, but not because, you know, I oppose the whole sermon idea for so many reasons. So, but... So we, we went after, we really went after this. What, whether it's Bible study or whether it's a sermon, what are two things we cannot bring to the sermon or to Bible study? Presuppositions, and that means what? Our previous understanding and conclusions. And number two, our theology. Those things cannot be brought to the sermon and cannot be, br- and I know that that sounds crazy. You can't bring it to the sermon. You can't bring it to the Bible study. But if, if you keep bringing it there, then basically you've just figured out which team you're on and you just keep talking that language over and over and over. There's never any challenge. There's never any confusion. It's simple. It's easy. And everyone's happy. But 2,000 years of church history and all the latest studies show that it's been absolutely a waste of time and useless. And so if all we're going to do is waste our time and it's just going to be useless, I say then just stay home and nobody just worry about anything and we all be good. Because what's the point of coming to church playing that little game where everyone feels like they, they got something and nobody remembers it six, six minutes later. So I want to blow that entire system up and say, well, what we do is their job here is to get to the text. That's what we're here to do. And if the text is law, then law. And if it's gospel, it's gospel, right? And if we don't know what to do with it, we don't know what to do with it, right? And we don't bring any of those other ideas. So we spent a lot of time on that. Okay, uh, we... Uh, just go back to, I believe it's 2 Corinthians 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 is what I meant to say. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. I'm going to read it from this translation. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. To some we are in uh, aroma of death, leading to death, but to others an aroma of life, leading to life, who is adequate for these things. And the reason we are this is because we're in Christ, and in Christ we are a sweet aroma to God, right, in Christ. And as a result of that, if you think about it, one, because of what we are, because of who we are in Christ— to a, to a fellow believer, that's a good thing. To an unbeliever, they don't see the good thing in it, and it's, it's, it's not appealing to them in any way, shape, or form. The, the book is really trying to take the idea is because to, if you think about it, for the unbeliever, we typically have to, at least to some degree, present the law to them, which is death, right? 
And in the gospel, obviously we can speak the gospel to believers, but in a roundabout way, sometimes you've got to speak the law to a believer, and sometimes, sometimes you've got to speak the gospel to an unbeliever. So we could, we could get into a whole discussion there. But that's kind of the idea they're trying to paint with it and, and trying the idea they're trying to, to go with this. We really just have about two paragraphs left. So we'll go through this relatively quickly, and then we'll just move on to thesis number four. Sounds good? Because we've basically, I think, covered everything we have here. The difficulty of properly dividing law and gospel is still greater in the, private, in the pastor's private ministrations to individuals. In the pulpit, he may say various things, hoping they will strike home. But when people seek his pastoral counsel, he is confronted with a far greater difficulty. Right Now, they think it's easy in, in the pulpit because you're basically supposed to do what? Try to give both every single time. All right, and we, we have already talked about the issues here. But they say it is far more difficulty dealing with an ind- individual seeking counsel. He will soon observe which of his callers is a Christian and which not. Okay, I'm not so sure I agree with that. Um, I think he may have an idea which is and which isn't, but that's not the whole problem with law and gospel. Uh, trying to determine who's saved and who isn't saved is the never-ending problem because how do we typically determine who's saved and who's not saved? By law, which then destroys law and gospel. I mean, really. I mean, all you can do is, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Or are you trusting in him alone? If they say yes, I mean, like, I mean, you can sit there and say, well, your life this, your life this, your life this, your life that. But immediately you're looking to law to justify salvation, which means, I mean, that just destroys everything. It really does. Even though Christians don't see, when you say that to Christians, they look at you like, what do you mean? I don't understand. Are you saying it doesn't matter what we do? No, I'm saying I can't judge what you do as the proof of one's salvation because that would mean your salvation is determined by what you do and not what Christ did, which destroys the entire gospel of grace. Uh, it, I, it's just, oh, it, it's maddening here. All right. This is not saying that the pastor may not be deceived by the pious men and manners of a hypocrite. So see right there. Hey, you're going to know, but you might be deceived. Okay, let me help you. Because you can't really know. Okay, remember, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, 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 this. Depart from me, I never knew you. So those would have been the people we would have been saying are probably saved. And then that tax collector who wouldn't even look to heaven, we'd have been like, he's, he's a piece of garbage. He's a traitor. So immediately, you, 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 if you can be deceived, then we can't know. So what's, what's the best approach for Christians? Don't make the judgment. If someone professes to be saved, then how do we approach them? As a saved person, treat them as a saved person, speak to them as a saved person, challenge them as a saved person, and, 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 and try to help them and disciple them. If they don't profess Christ, then treat them as an unbeliever. Any other approach is just like, hey, you should know. Well, in reality, you could be deceived. Yeah, I wonder why. I wonder why. All right. Uh, however... Now, this is what they say. If the pastor can rightly divide law and gospel, his callers may have deceived him, but it's their own fault if they applied the wrong teaching to themselves. Well, hey, hey, the pastor may not know, but it's not the pastor's fault. It's the people's fault. Man, what? Oh, okay. 
This, this, mm, mm, this is getting frustrating. Okay. A fearful responsibility is assumed by the pastor only in case he himself is to blame if his people misunderstand him. If people act like Christians only to deceive me, they deceive themselves rather than me. A pastor must treat any person as a Christian when he appears to be one and vice versa. No, no, I don't treat someone as a Christian if they appear to be one. I treat someone as a Christian if they profess what? To be faith in in Christ. I believe in Christ. I believe he died for me. I am trusting in his finished work. That's the end. There's no more questioning, looking, trying to figure it out. And and, oh, I'm going to look for this and I'm going to look for that. You're judging them what they do. And not only that, we've already determined in Matthew 7, it's the people who did things were the ones who weren't saved. That's the most mind-boggling part of that whole concept. Right? Because if I'm looking at what they do, well, those are a good example of people. They did some great things, did they not? They called him Lord. They preached. They cast out demons. And they did miracles. Well, I think that would be a pretty good indicator, right? Nope. It's not, not a good indicator. So, yeah. However, not all unchristians are alike. So not all non-Christians or unchristians are alike. They use the word unchristians. One is crass. All right. One is irreligious. The other one is a scorner of the Bible. Another is orthodox and possesses the dead faith of the intellect only. The minister, unless he himself is a slave of sin and incapable of forming a judgment of the person before him, recognizes in the latter a person spiritually blind, blind and still in bonds of spiritual death. Hmm. Now, if an unchristian has become truly alarmed and filled with the unnamed dread, though he is still unbroken, the pastor may say to himself, this person must first be crushed. Some are addicted to advice. Others are self-righteous. To discover which class these various unconverted persons belong to and apply the proper medicine to them. This is the very difficulty of which I am speaking. My object is to convince you that the preacher can be truly fitted out for his calling only by the Holy Spirit. You knew they were going to go there, right? So how can I know what kind of sinner you are? Because I supposedly get supernatural insight by the Holy Spirit. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. We reject. Well, we could talk about the apostles possibly, definitely. Okay. We could possibly talk about it. But I'm saying we don't clearly possess that power because it would just, we would be able to know immediately. We don't possess that power. I, I, I keep having these conversations because people continually. They struggle with my, my whole perspective here, right? I don't believe the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth, right? Because if the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth, we'd be there. There's a, a famous podcast called Theocast where they did an episode that the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth when we obey. So that's why it's never happened. So that's why it's never happened. <laughs> We don't obey. So, so then they have to say, well, it's not complete obedience. So then there's a certain level of obedience that gets you. The whole thing just becomes ridiculous, right? And again, if that is true, well, then I guess if I say I obey and the Holy Spirit's leading me into truth, you know immediately what you're claiming. That I have the truth. And if you disagree with me, 
you're wrong because my I was led. That is the most that that's how cults form. Like in, I know Theocast and other podcasts like that are well respected, but to me, if you hear that, that's where you get in your car and you drive as far as you can away because that's how a cult gets formed, right? Well, the Holy Spirit led him into all truth. What he says has to be true. Because if I say if what he says is not true, then I say the Holy Spirit didn't lead him in. You see, that's just, that's, no. And we really, and we all know we don't really believe that, do we? Right, because here's how, here's how fast we believe the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. How fast does it take for me to say something that you disagree with, and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit doesn't lead me into all truth, but he leads you into all truth. And if I disagree with you, then the Holy Spirit's not leading you. It's just, it's a ridiculous claim. It's the most ridiculous claim I have ever heard in my life. It literally means nothing. The Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. Okay, well, I disagree with you. Well, you can't disagree with me. No, the Holy Spirit leads me into all truth and has told me you're wrong. Well, no, 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 no. No, the Holy Spirit leads me into all truth and it says that you're wrong. Well, the Holy Spirit can't be leading us both into all truth since we, we disagree. <laughs> so who's being led by the Holy Spirit? Do you get a text from the Holy Spirit telling you? No. Guess who determines the, who, the, who the Holy Spirit's leading? <laughs> you do. <laughs> Which means who's doing the leading? The person. Oh, it's so, oh, it's so so maddening. It's so maddening. So here's how we deal with people. So let's just make it simple, all right? For long gospel, it is a difficult art. It's the most difficult thing. But if you need help, this is how we approach people. Do they profess faith in Jesus Christ? They do. Treat them as a Christian. Now, as you're treating them as a Christian, sometimes what does a Christian need to hear? Law. Sometimes what does a Christian need to hear? Gospel. What do you think is the key indicator whether a Christian needs to hear gospel or law? It's really their emotion and their attitude, right? If they're broken, guilt, shame, discouragement, depression, frustration, want to give up, gospel. If they seem to be rebellious, I can do whatever I want, right? I don't, li- I, 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 I don't even believe that's wrong. I, you know, that, that's your opinion. And they be- then what do they need? The law. It's really that simple. The, the book doesn't need to complicate it. Doesn't need to complicate it. Because if you do, it just becomes a problem. Oh, man. All right, so many issues. All right, fine. This is the last paragraph in this one. Finally, the greatest difficulty is encountered in dealing with true Christians according to their particular spiritual condition. One has a weak, another has a strong faith. One is cheerful, another sorrowful. One is sluggish, another burning with zeal. Only has uh, little spiritual knowledge. Oh, and another is deeply grounded in the truth. So they're saying there's different sinners, there's different Christians, and we have to approach them differently. I do agree with that. But I don't have to figure out which one's the saved one, which is, is the unsaved one. All I can do is go with one's profession of faith. You say, well, what if someone's making a profession of faith and they're not really saved and you give them gospel when you really should be giving them law? Look, there, this, is, this, is not a perfect, this is not a perfect system because I'm fallible, they're fallible, I'm a sinner and they're a sinner. But here's what I can't do. Spend 40 minutes thinking I can look into someone's heart and figure out if they're saved or not saved. Because the minute I start doing that, we know how I'm going to judge their salvation. 
according to law. And the minute I judge someone's salvation on the basis of law, what do I no longer believe in? And a salvation by an imputed righteousness. So we said this a million times. Can you, can you judge an imputed righteousness? No. An imputed righteousness cannot be judged. Can an imputed righteousness be tested? Now, if you say, well, the imputed righteousness will do this, then that's not imputed. That's infused. And so what, in reality, the Protestant Reformation was a failure because most Christians today, whether they claim it or not, they believe in an infused righteousness. And they just won't admit it. So what should they do? Go to a Catholic church. They really should. And, I, and that's not even, I'm not saying that in a mean way. Go, look, don't go to another Protestant church and pretend that you believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Because clearly you don't. You believe we're saved by an infused righteousness and the proof that we've received that infused righteousness is our cooperation with it to be godly and holy and to do this and this and this and this and this. At least Catholics have a system where you know if it's a mortal sin and a venial sin and you know the mortal sin does this much damage, the venial sin does this much damage and here's all the sacraments to help you out and you can get an indulgence. Oh yeah, and you're going to go to purgatory. So at least they have an entire system to make it work. In the evangelical world, we tell everyone we believe yourself saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, and then turn around and literally contradict that in everything we say and do. That's maddening. All right. So we come to number four. Any questions on three? All right. We got it all figured out, right? I know there was a lot there, but that's okay. All right. This is number four. Here we go. The true knowledge of the distinction between the law and the gospel is not only a glorious light affording the correct understanding of the entire Holy Scriptures, but without this knowledge, the Scripture remains a sealed book. What's the simple way of describing number four? Law, the, uh, the, uh, uh, a proper understanding of long gospel is absolutely essential to a correct understanding of scripture. I'm, now I'm paraphrasing it a little bit, but you get the basic idea. Without that, the book is, is sealed tight. We can't understand it. We don't know what to do with it. All right. Now that's a big claim. That's a big claim. On one, there's a part of me that's like, mm, kind of want to push back on that. There's a part of me that says, no, I understand it. A good example. What did we work on this morning in the first hour? Colossians 3. And there's a lot there that you struggle with until you get a good understanding of law and gospel. So I think that there is some truth to this. We just got to be careful that we just don't immediately impose it on a text, right? And that's, that's the hard part in trying to figure this out. But it is a concept that we have to keep in mind. Let's see what they have to say about this and if they offer them. Any examples or anything? All right, here we go. While still ignorant of the distinction between the law and the gospel, a person receives the impression that a great number of contradictions are contained in the scriptures. Let's stop right here. All right. If you're ignorant of law and gospel, they believe you're going to find lots of contradictions in the Bible. 
All right. And, and did, can everyone understand why there would be possible contradictions without a proper distinction between law and gospel? Because what happens over and over and over in the scriptures? Okay, all right. Well, we have two things going on in scripture. On one hand, we seem to be told that we are saved by what? Works. I mean, we clearly does. It seems clear that we're going to be saved. We're told we're going to be judged by our works. It seems to say if you do this and do this and do this, you're saved. And if you don't do this and you don't do this and you don't do this, you're not saved. Or, you're, or you are saved. And it goes back and forth. And, and that, that's just, it's all over the place. But then on the other side, what do we have? That you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. You're declared righteous by faith, not by what you do. And, and look, we know that this is an apparent, it looks like a contradiction, because what has happened in 2,000 years of church history? People try to figure it out. Everybody's trying to come up with every, every attempt, right? You got some who will focus on the law. You got some who focus on the gospel. You got everything from antinomian to a workspace system. You got everything from an antinomian or easy believism, free grace to lordship salvation. You got everything in between. You got people who believe you can lose your salvation, people who believe you can't lose your salvation. And why do every, why is there so many opinions and thoughts and denominations? Because it looks like a contradiction. You're like, well, wait a minute, Paul, I thought you said I'm saved by grace. Now you say, if I don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this, I'm possibly not saved. How can it be both? Right? Catholics are like, well, because you have to do the works. Protestants say, no, 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 no. You're not saved by the works, but the works prove you're saved. So if you don't have the works, you're not saved, but you're not saved by the works, which is just a weird circle, isn't it? Hey, and James, yeah, clearly raises all kinds of problems. So we, we go through, and I understand everyone's trying to figure this out. They're going to suggest, obviously, the solution to this is a proper understanding of law and gospel, which I think it makes more sense than some of the others. All right, here we go. In fact, the entire scripture seems to be made up of contradictions if we don't have a proper distinction of law and gospel. And I think it, it definitely feels that way. Now, the scriptures pronounce one blessed. Now they condemn him. That's how I sometimes feel. Hey, this person is blessed. Wait, no, now this person is condemned. Wait, this person is saved. Wait a minute. Now it would seem to imply this person may not be saved. Well, then people come along and go, well, see, that's because you can lose your salvation and everybody debates and it goes around and around and around. When the rich youth asked the Lord, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? The Lord replied, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And we're baffled by that, right? Like, why would you say that, Jesus? Give him the gospel. But when the jailer at Philippi addressed the identical question to Paul and Silas, he received the answer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Well, wait, why, 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 wouldn't the, why wouldn't that jailer get the same answer? Keep the commandments. I mean, Jesus told someone, what do you need to, when they asked, what do I need to do to be saved? Keep the commandments. The, the, when the jailer asked, believe on the Lord Jesus. Well, well, right, well the, the, I guess the, the main thing is, I just want you to see, is they, they, don't they look like a contradiction? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, it definitely seems to be problematic. All right, they go, I, but and then they go on to say. On the other hand, we read in uh, Habakkuk two four, the righteous shall live by faith. On the other hand, we note that John in his first epistle says, "He who does right is righteous." The righteous shall live by faith. No, he who does right is righteous. You see the difference? How how is this? How do we understand this? I mean, we, we could make a list of all the apparent contradictions. Over and over, uh, this, over, over and against this, the Apostle Paul declares, since you have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, uh, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So that goes against some of the others, right? On the one hand, we note that the scriptures declare God has no pleasure in sinners. On the other hand, we find that it states, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In one place, Paul cries, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men. And Psalm 5, 4, we read, thou art not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not sojourn with thee. And another place we hear Peter saying, set your hope fully upon the grace that is coming to you. On the other hand, we are told that all the world is under the wrath of God. And on the other hand, we read, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But on another hand, we read in 1 Corinthians where the apostle first makes this statement, neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then adds, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Must not a person who knows nothing of the distinction between the law and gospel be swallowed up in utter darkness when reading all of this? Must he not indignantly cry out, What? This is God's word? A book of such contradictions? I can agree. Now, I don't know how Christians read it and don't go, What? I, I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't I think I think I may well maybe some never experienced that. I would think I would hope all Christians experience that. But what we typically do is try to find the most simplistic answer we can to make us feel better, and we think it works, right? For example, right? Let's just let's go to the example that they gave. I mean, they gave plenty there. Go to First Corinthians six. Let's go to First Corinthians six. First Corinthians six. This is an easy one to look at. First Corinthians chapter six. I'm going to just make sure I have the app open in case someone asks a question, because you never know. First Corinthians chapter six. Everybody there? All right. I'm going to go with this uh, translation. First Corinthians chapter six. This will give us multiple translations to look at. Right, First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. Right, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Stop right there. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know how long you've been a Christian, 
But how were you taught to handle that verse in most of your Christian life? Or put, forget how you were taught. How have you handled that verse most of your Christian life? Okay, you've probably approached that, that as a Christian, you're no longer unrighteous, not, and you don't even probably distinct, make a distinction between position and practice, that you just no longer do these things, therefore you're saved. Right? Right? So, look, it's going to, so, the, inherit, the uh, unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Does it begin to name a lot, a lot of things that would be related to unrighteousness? Okay. Immediately after it says that, what does he do? Okay. Um. I gotta hang on. I go. I gotta find the verse, right? Uh, okay. And immediately he says, "Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral person." What's the next word? Stop right there. Now let's just stop because we all. Every, guess what? Everyone focuses on in the American church. What does everyone focus on in the American church in that passage? The sexual sin. I mean, that's what we go to. Boom! We got to go to that sexual sin. So. We convince ourselves, as long as I'm not committing these sexual sins, and we know that we convince ourselves that we don't commit these sexual sins in what way? In an external way. You can commit them internally all day, every day. As long as no one catches you, nobody's going to say you're not going to have it. Even though Jesus says, if you even look and lust, you're guilty. So we all sit there, everyone sits in their pew, condemns the person who gets caught in the, in the physical act. Right? <gasps> Can you believe? Grab the rocks! Grab the rocks! We got a stoning! We got a stoning at sundown! It's going to be fun! Right? And everyone with those rocks in their hands, right? High probability have committed the same sin in their mind 327 billion times. Maybe that's a little bit of hyperbole, but you get the idea. Immediately when I hear no... uh, Do me a favor. Uh, See if the Bible dictionary has an entry for unrighteous. I don't know if it does, but let's just see if it does. And Sarah, you want to look up the Greek word there in 1 Corinthians 6? For unrighteous, we'll get up from a, a couple of different ways. Uh, yeah, they don't have a, 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 a entry for it. Okay, how about the Greek word? You think it would be an important word to have a definition for, wouldn't you? Uh, does the NIV use unrighteous? Wicked, okay. <laughs> okay. So Thayer's definition, descriptive of one who violates or has violated justice. All right. Okay. It can have a broad range of meanings, but once you say sinful, all you got to say is sinful, then immediately that describes whom? All of us, right? Yeah. Right? Because remember, okay, think of it this. If, if, if sin makes us unrighteous, 
All right? What is, what, what is the standard then to be righteous? Sinless. Holy. So any falling short of that makes you unrighteous. Now, it may have different variations, right? You may be wicked. You may be a heathen. You may be unjust. But as long the minute they bring in the idea of sinful, then immediately we're unrighteous. And no unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God. So immediately you get nervous, right? You're like, okay, okay, oh man, oh man, oh man, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Okay, good. He's going to give me a list. Okay, got my list, all right? What's the first one? First Corinthians 6 is or, uh, sexual immoral. Okay, oh man, everybody's like that one. All right, we like that one, okay, right? Everybody likes that one? Right? Okay, well, let's just go with the first one, right? Sexually immoral. Okay, that's good. That can be any kind of sexual immorality. All right? Sounds good, right? And immediately we're like, okay, all right, no premarital sex, no adultery, no homosexuality. All right, good. All right. And we immediately reduce it to what? The physical act. Jesus comes along and says, if you look at it and desire it and lust, boom, you're guilty of it. Well, now immediately we should go, we, what should we do with this text? Everybody should be like, oh, no, 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 no. Now, you don't want to say anything in church because you'll give it away that you're sexually immoral. So you've got you to say, amen, brother, that's right. Get rid of those sexually immoral people. The LGBTQ, we've got to get rid of them because we know they're the sexually immoral. We're all good. Right? That's how, almost how we play it out. Then the next one says idolatry. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What's idolatry? Isn't that how we almost always define it? Anything that gets put before God is idolatry, right? Okay. Now, now I get nervous because now that becomes real. If the unrighteous didn't get me, I may be able to get around the sexually immoral by just reducing it to the physical act. As long as I keep... But... I'm telling you, if I never say the word, it's so weird how it works in Christianity. If I never say it, right, I can think it and nobody's going to do anything about it. Nobody ever gets in trouble for thinking it, even though scripturally I shouldn't even be able to inherit the kingdom of God. But idolatry, no one has ever been church disciplined for idolatry. No one. Oh, yeah, I know. We'll get to those. But idolatry, who would be done? Who would be done right there before idolatry? Yeah. Because now now we're going to get to a test, right? How do you know if something is an idol in your life? Oh, there's been sermons preached this way. How do you know if something's an idol in your life? What do they typically go to? What's the go-to checklist to know if something's become an idol in your life? All right. You spend more time thinking about it. More time desiring it, right? Thinking it, desiring it, more time with it or dedicated to it. You love it more. You give more money to it, right? And a lot of times pastors will preach this when it comes time for stewardship and money. Is God first in your life or is money? You better be giving your 10% tithe. If not, you're, you've put other things before God. And that works, that preaches good and gives a lot of guilt giving, right? And, and churches survive off guilt giving, right? Without guilt giving, most churches would collapse, right? You got to make people feel guilty to get the money, right? So, but, and so immediately it becomes a list of rules, right? 
And so you have to convince yourself, I'm not, I'm not unrighteous. I'm not unrighteous. I'm not sexually immoral. And I'm not an idolater. Because if I'm any of those things, what's the text say? Not going to inherit the kingdom of God. See how practical, how, how wide, see, this is why you've got to understand law and gospel or the Bible becomes a sealed book. What's the next one? Adulterer. So, oh, so now it's going to give the sexual immorality and now it's going to even, it's going to give us some more detail, right? So that no one can get away. Again, what, what makes someone an adulterer? It can be right here. It can be right here, right? In mind, in the heart. Okay, next. Effeminate. Now, some translations use the word homosexual. We can get a whole debate all day about whether the word belongs there or doesn't belong there. I know the new documentary out saying that the word homosexual is a mistake. It was put in the Bible in 1920. I understand all of the... I've talked about it. I talked about it like two years ago on my podcast, and all of a sudden now everyone's talking about the documentary. I'm like, I only told you about the documentary was coming two years ago, but okay, all right. All right, so we have homosexuality. Again, everyone places that like in its own special category, but it's put right there with idolatry. It's put right there with all the other forms of sexual immorality, right? It's just another form of sexual immorality. Okay, next. Okay, abusers of themselves with mankind. How do others translate it? All right, sodomites. Other, other translations. Mine have, has males who have sex with males. All right. All right. We got that. All right. So we, again, it's just another form of sexual immorality, right? Next. Thieves. All right. Stealing. Any form of stealing. Stealing can take on major, like you go into a store with a gun. Stealing can be just you cheat, you defraud someone. I mean, there's a lots of ways of stealing. Yes? Okay. Lots of different ways. All right. What's next? Oh, no. Covetousness. What's covetousness? What's covetousness? All right, some will say greedy. You, you want what, what other people have. You desire it. Yeah, you want it. You desire it. That could be anything, right? You want their family. You want their house. You want their car. You want their job. You want their money. Because, it, because what, what, what makes covetousness a sin? Because you're supposed to love your neighbor. Yourself. You're supposed to put others before yourself. Well, that's not putting others before yourself, right? If you want what they want. Right? What's next? Drunkards. All right. Next. Slanderers. Oh, you're telling me if you slander, you're in the same category with homosexuals? Perish the thought. A homosexual will be church disciplined so fast in a conservative church you won't even be able to blink twice. While the slanderers sit in the pews, they're the deacons, they're the elders, they're the pastors, and nobody will do a thing about it. Now look, if you go down, if you, if you don't deserve heaven because of idolatry and slander, I don't know who's getting in. I don't know who's getting How frequently is slander given out by everyone? If you have a mouth, you've slandered someone. Right? Everyone should say amen, all right? Next. Extortioners. Is that the last one? 
Right? None of those people will inherit the kingdom of God. None of those people. Now, you, so how have you handled this most of your life? You've, you've basically been taught, well then, basically you're saying, well, no one's going to do this perfectly, but this means your life won't be described this way or characterized by this. That's the way to get around it. That sounds good, but when they say it won't be characterized, what are they going to focus on? The sexual immorality and the homosexuality. But how do you know someone's life is not characterized by sexual immorality? You don't know what's going on in their mind. So then you reduce it to an external and not the internal. But wait a minute. How come we say someone's life won't be characterized by idolatry? Are you going to tell me the average Christian in America's life is not characterized by idolatry? Give me a break. Do you know how much slander comes out of the mouth of Christians? I think it's a favorite pastime for some. So, so here, so immediately we got a verse here that says, if you do this, you not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So let's go through, let's write out our options. Everybody ready? All right. We got, we got, okay. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. How do we get around this? Everybody ready? All right. Here's option number one. Boom. Okay. Your life won't be characterized. In other words, you may do these things. You may fall into them, but it's not going to be the overall character of your life. The overall direction of your life. Again, to, to accomplish this, what's required? You almost forget idolatry, you forget slander, you forget unrighteous, and you just focus on basically sex. Right? That's basically what you focus on. All right? Because all the other things get ignored. Right? When I was a teenager at First Baptist Church, Tuscola, they sure weren't talking to me about idolatry or slander or covetousness, but sexual sin was being preached all the time because you better not, you better not, you better not, you better not, you better not. And if, and if a teenager got caught in sexual sin, then there was, some, there, there was consequences. Not, not for the idolatry. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh yeah, the guy was always gone. Yeah, the guy was always gone. And the girl was the one who had to stand in front of everyone and apologize. Oh man, some really messed up stuff in churches, how that stuff goes down. But we won't go there, right? So that's the first way to get around it. What's the second way to get around it? So your life won't be characterized by it, but you see the problems with it. What's the second solution? The second one is more, it kind of kind of goes with the first one, but it basically goes like this. This is basically a test. And if you're found guilty of any of this, there's a good chance you're not saved. They may not even say, even if it's a one-time thing, even if it's a one-time thing, they may call your salvation into question, right? They may say, well, look, you, you engaged in a homosexual practice, you're probably not saved. I mean, you know that would go down in most churches, Two people got caught in a homosexual situation. Their, their salvation is going to be completely questioned. We know that. Let's just be honest. If it's a guy and a girl, everyone may be like, okay, if it's a two guys or two girls, it's over. They're done. They're finished. They're, that's the end of the world, right? The whole world's going to melt down and nuclear explosions are going to occur. We all know that's the way the game is playing. So the first one, your life won't be characterized. The second one would be, well, if you do it at all, there's a good chance you're not safe. What would be the third way of trying to handle this? If you do this, you lose your salvation. If you commit any of these sins, you lose your salvation. So you have to get resaved. 
Church of Christ, we go this direction. Many charismatic denominations would go with this. Assemblies of God believe you can lose your salvation. They would go this direction. All right? So those are three options. Do you like any of them? All of them are focused on what you do or don't do. And now salvation is determined not by the gospel. It's determined by, by me. All right. So what's the fourth option? Read the next verse. All right, such were some of you. Now, most people read this to mean if you become a Christian, so you will never do these things again. That's how, that's how we heard it preached in Independent Fundamental Baptist Church, MacArthur's Church. This is how you would hear it preached. Y'all went, y'all went to a church with someone who graduated from uh, Master Seminary. I guarantee they taught it the same way, right? Right? Everyone teaches it that way, Right? You don't do this anymore. You can't do this anymore because you're a new creature in Christ. The old is gone. This can't show up in your life. But these sins have been showing up in people's lives as believers forever. Was the, first, was the church at Corinth guilty of almost all of these things? They were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper for crying out loud. They were divided, schism, sexual sin. That church was a disaster, Right? Correct? All right? So, so what's the fourth? Keep reading. Such were some of you. Next verse. Or our next words. You, but, but, that cancels everything out, right? Washed. Present tense, past tense. You are washed. I am washed right now. I'm washed. Like, it's a completed act, right? Agreed? All right, next. I am sanctified. Wait, I am washed. I am sanctified. Washed means I'm clean, right? Now, we typically, some people would understand washed to mean I am clean from the axe. I no longer do the axe. But couldn't washed be referring that I am washed, that I am clean from the guilt? Sanctified. Doesn't say sanctification here is not saying I'm I'm going through the process of sanctified. It says that I am I am sanctified. Right? Now, this sanctified would be what? Remember we talked about the different sanctifications? There are three sanctifications, right? What's the first sanctification? Okay, do what? We'll call it, okay, we'll go with positional. I gave different names, but that's okay. We'll go with positional, all right? In other words, in salvation, or we can go this way. First, I was sanctified in eternity past, right? Because God elected me, right? He chose me. So he set me apart to himself before I was ever created, before I was ever born. So that's my eternal sanctification, right? In the past. Then I was sanctified, in a sense, at the moment of salvation, because now he sets me apart, because guess what I am? Now I am washed. I am forgiven. I am justified. I have been set apart now for myself in salvation. So I've got my eternal, I've got my, in a sense, in justification and my salvation, that I am sanctified. Third, what do I have? We'll call it the practical sanctification. That's an ongoing process. It's not done. It's ongoing. And then I have what? 
The future one, which will be in glorification, right? The, or we'll call it completed justification. It's finally completed, right? Now, he, he's not talking, clearly he's not talking so much about the eternity, eternal one, right? Clearly he's not talking about the future one, and he doesn't seem to be talking about the one that's currently in process, progress, right? He seems to be referring to the one that happened as when I got saved, I am what? I am sanctified. I am washed. What else does he say? I'm justified. Oh, now we really know where we're going, right? I'm justified not on whether I have sexual immorality or don't have sexual immorality. I am justified whether I commit adultery or, or, or not commit adultery. I'm justified whether I commit idolatry or not commit idolatry. I'm justified whether I commit homosexuality or don't commit homosexuality. Why am I justified? Because of an imputed righteousness. So what is the solution here? All of those things he just said don't do, that's all law, 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 law. What's my hope for those law? To do better? It is the gospel, and where's the gospel? Washed, sanctified, justified. Is there another one there, or is that the only three? The three, and what does he say at the end? Oh, now please note, who did the the washing, the sanctifying, and the justifying? Okay, well, it names Christ and it names the Spirit. Does it name both in that verse? In the name and by the Spirit. All right, so these things have been done for us, which makes it gospel. How we preach this is when you get saved, you won't do these things anymore. But we know, we can only preach that so much because you know that all of these things are happening in pretty much every church. So then you have to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, you won't be characterized by it. Now you're washing it down, watering it down. You water it down enough so that people feel good about it. Here's the reality. We are condemned by those things. But we are saved by what Christ did. In Christ Jesus, am I sexually immoral? In Christ Jesus, am I a homosexual? In Christ Jesus, am I an idolater? In Christ Jesus, am I covetous? In Christ Jesus, am I a slanderer? And practice, I may be. In fact, in some way, I will be all of those things, right? Either in the mind, in the heart. Now, as soon as I say that, people are going to be, but, 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 but you're, you're, you're making an excuse. I'm not making an excuse. I'm dealing with the reality. Either live pretending this stuff isn't in the church or the, the church Paul is writing to. Aren't they guilty of all of these things? Yes. But what did he call them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Fleshly, carnal, but babes in Christ. Does that make sense? That passage can be very confusing to people, can it not? And it can appear to be a contradiction from everything else that says. So they say you read this verse, you read 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, and you compare it to other passages of the Bible about being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Again, this is what they say. 
when, if you don't know anything about the, between the distinction between law and gospel and you read this, you're going to be swallowed up in utter darkness. You're going, to, you're going to cry out, this is God's word, a book of contradictions. Or you're going to be given some garbage. You're going to try to believe it. But, you're, but you're, you know what's required for you to believe it? You've got to pretend that you're not those things. And the church has been pretending that we're not those things for 2,000 years. And every time we turn around, what do we prove? We have those things. I mean, one of the, uh, one, I don't know if it was the number one, one of the popular shows on Hulu right now deals with the whole Falwell Liberty University crash and all the sexual sin and scandal that was going on there. It's all, it's all over Hulu. Jerry Falwell's son and all of the crazy stuff that happened at Liberty. It was messed up. And people are like, well, and so immediately what do Christians say? Probably wasn't saved. Probably wasn't saved. That's all we want to do. As soon as someone gets caught in some big scandal, say they probably weren't saved and we, what do we want to do with them? We want, to get, we want them to get away from us. Go, get out, go somewhere else. You're garbage. You, you're not good enough to be with us righteous people. We're the, we're, we're the good people. You're trash. Yeah. yeah. You may be good externally, but you're just as much trash as I am as I am. You're no different. You're just different. You've just got it covered up. And, and, it, and it doesn't it always reveal itself in some way, shape, or form? All right, so what do they do here? For the situation is not that the Old Testament reveals a wrathful, a, uh, a wrathful and the New Testament a gracious God, or that the Old Testament teaches salvation by a person's own works and the New Testament by faith. No, we find both teachings in the Old as well in the New Testament. But the moment we learn to know the distinction between the law and the gospel, it's as if the sun were rising upon the scripture and we, we behold all the contents of the scripture in most beautiful harmony. They're like, once you understand law and gospel, it begins to come together and make sense. In other words, 1 Corinthians 6 doesn't seem so contradictory, does it? It seems to be what? Here's the law. And how are you saved? By what Christ did for you not what you do. And that literally the proper distinction between law and gospel? I mean, look, all the other ways to try to fix that verse are insane. Especially when you have those other things mentioned in there. We see that the law was not revealed to us to put the notion into our heads that we can become righteous by it. Please note, the law was not revealed to us to put in our minds that we become righteous by it. People think we become righteous by what we do. You do not become righteous by what you do. You are declared to be righteous by what Christ did. Because no matter what you do, will it ever be righteous enough? No, in fact, could it ever be truly called righteous? To really be declared righteous, it would have to be with, without what? Sin. Has any of your actions ever been perfect? No. Has a, has a wife's submission to her husband ever been perfect? No. Has a husband ever loved his wife as Christ loved the church? Okay, <laughs> okay. 
Bobby's like, yeah, we got that down. It's the women that fall here, not us. We got, we got this down. We, do the, we love people right. They don't submit right. You're at, you're at, you're actually, you're right. This is really, long gospel is really for women. Because men, we have it down. Okay. Well, do I? Yeah, Diane's not here, so Bobby feels like all, all bro, brave and bold. Right? Okay. Yeah. okay, all right, I understand. All right, but the point is, we all fall short, yes? And we can go through th- from all the way down, right? We, we fell our kids because we provoke them to wrath. Kids fell us because they don't obey their parents. We can go on. It doesn't matter the sin. It doesn't matter the, the situation. We are never righteous. So let me state it again. Oh, the law does not make us righteous. The law does not make us righteous. It only reveals our unrighteousness. Does that make the law unrighteous? No, the law is righteous and holy. But it can't make me righteous. Everybody got that? But it is to teach us that we are utterly unable to fulfill the law. We are utterly unable to fulfill the law. We are utterly unable to fulfill the law. And this is what drives me crazy, is that Christians constantly teach that we can obey it. That we now have the power. We can put sin to death. We can do it. Well, then if you can, well, first of all, that means then the law is capable of being met which would be a major problem. But number two, then you should be able to do it perfectly. The minute you say we can, then you, you are claiming that we can be perf- perfect. And I can't stand when a pastor will say, you now have been set free from the bondage of sin. You can obey God. You can say no to sin. You can do it. And then turn around about five seconds later and say, however, you won't be perfect. Well, the minute you say I can't be perfect, then you're telling me I can't. How, how do pastors not realize that? I don't get it. It's like there's some mental block in the minds of believers. Like immediately you should go, wait, 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 wait. What am I saying here? They go on to say, when we have learned this, we shall know what a sweet message, what a glorious doctrine the gospel is and shall receive it with exuberant joy. I, I think the minute we realize how what the law does and that we're, uncap- we're absolutely incapable of keeping it, that we will receive the gospel with joy. I don't think we receive the gospel with joy until we realize. But see, here's the problem. This is a question. All right, thinking caps on. I almost want to just, just I almost want to take what I'm about to say and just make it a podcast by itself. All right, everybody ready? All right. Do we believe that within evangelical Christianity and in your own Christian experience and my own Christian experience and your church experience and my church experience, do you believe most Christians believe the law can make us righteous? Well, just, just consider yourself in your own Christian experience. Do you think you believed it? That, the, that by keeping the law, you can be righteous. <clears throat> so that the law can make you righteous. Well, just, just how did you handle 1 Corinthians 6 in your past life? You probably believe that you could, you, that you could do it, that you, you've been washed and you no longer do those things. And you made some kind of excuse if you did it. 
So do you thought that the law can make you righteous? I think most Christians believe the law can make them righteous. Yeah. In some way, shape, or form, we believe this. Okay. I, I, I think the key is, the longer you're a Christian, and the more you fail, the more you realize, man, I am playing such a game here. Right? If you can be honest with yourself. If you can be, I think there's a, I think you can live in a, in a land of self-deceit for a while, right? I think you can live in denial for a while. I think, but if you're, yeah, I think, I think there's always situations we can get in that make us feel comfortable, all right? So, I think many Christians believe the law can make this, make them righteous. Oh, here's the, here's the real one, though. Many Christians may deny that, but here's where I think all the problems become. Have you, in your past, maybe even your present, or Christians you know right now, wherever they may be, they believe the gospel makes us righteous, not positionally, practically. Almost every, almost every believer you know believes the gospel makes it, them righteous practically. Because in Christ, we have been, how do they read 1 Corinthians 6? We've been washed, we've been justified, we've been sanctified, and they interpret that to mean we no longer do those sins that are listed in 1 Corinthians 6. That's how they read that. So that means they believe the gospel makes us righteous in a practical way. Now, the minute they believe the gospel makes us righteous in a practical way, what do they now believe? Thank you very much. That's the end. We're going home. Bobby just got it right. We're no longer going to have church. We're just going to end right there. I've done my job. Bobby got the right answer. We're done. Do I say it again? They believe in infused righteousness. If the gospel makes you righteous practically then what is the gospel? I, put, I believe in Christ and then he gives me righteousness. And if he gives me righteousness, that's what, what it, if it's imputed, it doesn't make me, does everybody understand? If it's imputed, it doesn't make me righteous. It simply declares me to be righteous. Does that make sense? If a homosexual believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, believes in him for their sin, they are declared righteous. And, and most Christians are like, no, 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 no. The gospel will make them stop being a homosexual. That's an infused righteousness. Right. I mean, if it's going to make the homosexual from stop sinning, then it should make the heterosexual from stop sinning. Right. It'll stop you from your homosexuality, but it won't stop a, a, a person from being a gossip, a slander, unsubmissive, okay, covetous, idolater. No, it doesn't stop any of those things. So most Christians believe in a system where the law makes you righteous and the gospel makes you righteous. And I will argue the law doesn't make you righteous. It reveals your unrighteousness and the gospel declares you to be righteous even though you are not nor will ever be. Now, listen, if you, if you can convince me that I'm wrong, 
I'm not coming to your Protestant church. I'm going straight back to Roman I'm going straight to Roman Catholicism. Get out of my way. I'm going to mass. I'm going to confession. I'm taking the sacraments. I'm going to submit myself to the Pope because they were right and we were wrong and the entire Protestant Reformation was an absolute crime against God. That's your two options. Don't go to your garbage Protestant church where you claim to be a Protestant where all you are is an in-the-closet Catholic. We need, we need, you know what we need? We need a coming out day within Christianity. Right, the LGBTQ movement has a coming out day. We need a coming out day in Protestant Christianity where Christians will stand up in the middle of the service and say, I'm really a Catholic. Like, I see that hand, brother. You're right. We're all actually Catholics. We're going to contact our local, our, 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 our local bishop for this diocese and we're going to go back to the Catholic Church. Because it's a joke. Claiming to be a Protestant when you believe in infused righteousness. Does the gospel make you righteous? What's the correct answer? It declares me. Doesn't make me. But what's the reality of me? I'm still unrighteous. You know how many people will hear this and will have all, this is going to cause complete mental meltdown in their brains? But, and you say, but that's not, if you tell me it's not true, what do you have to do? I say this all the time. This is something that we don't need to argue about. Just prove it to me. Don't sin. Now, anyone who's disagreed with me, have they yet to come to me and show me they're the God? You know what? The people who disagree with me, guess what they probably have done? They probably have slandered, talked back, dis, disrespectful. Uh, probably a million sins attached with it. A million sins to argue with me that the gospel doesn't make you righteous. Well, while you're sinning by arguing with me, haven't you actually proved that I am right? The answer is obviously yes. You've proven that I'm right because the only way to do it is you wouldn't sin. You wouldn't get upset. You wouldn't get mad. You wouldn't get angry. You wouldn't get anything. All right? And is it really 7-11? Is it really 11 minutes after 7? Is it really? Didn't church start at 7? Okay, all right. Oh, man, we didn't get near as far as we needed to. We didn't get near as far. All right, we're going to have to stop right there. (laughs) We only have two paragraphs to go, but I don't want to say them. All right, so in a roundabout way, what what this thesis has been about what? That the Bible's a closed book without it, and our best example is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Right? where everyone teaches it with all of these other options. But here's the thing I want you to take away. Everybody ready? If you don't write anything down, write this down. The law does not make us righteous. It demonstrates our unrighteousness, and listen to this, our inability to keep it. The law reveals our unrighteousness and our inability to keep it. We are not capable of keeping it. I don't care what pastors say. I don't care what they preach. It's a lie. Because if you say I can keep the law, then what does that mean? I can be perfect. Don't play this game where you say well, you, you, you can keep it, but you can't be perfect. Because the minute you say I can't be perfect, you, you just prove that I can't keep it, Right? 
It's just, it's just a ridiculous game. And here's the big one. Oh, man, I know this is controversial. The gospel does not make us righteous. It declares us to be righteous while we remain sinful. Wow, that's some... I think that's good stuff. Others will think that's controversial stuff. But I think it's just the only, only way to make sense of the scriptures. Are, are the books just, it's just a mindless contradiction that everyone should just throw away. And yes, I have, I'm, I'm going to get some email about it. Yes, I am calling for a national Christian coming out day where we come out and acknowledge that we believe in an infused righteous gospel and that we're actually Catholics and that the Protestant Reformation was a lie and we reject it. Because that's just the reality. Anyone wants to argue with this, they're just they're arguing Roman Catholicism. And don't tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. That's the whole reason I went to the Catholic University was so I, remember that, it was the Catholic University where I realized we're, we're Catholic. <laughs> we're Catholic. We just don't want to call ourselves that. And then you go back to our confession of faith, in which immediately says we are justified by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. And then you realize that's what the whole Protestant Reformation was about. And we threw out the Protestant Reformation for truck or treat or for whatever other nonsense we're doing. And I think many in the Reformed Church have, have really, they rejected as well because they teach some infused righteousness. We all want that to be so true. I want it to be true that I'm never going to sin again, but it's not the case. I'm going I'm to sin tonight. I'm going to sin tomorrow. I'm going to sin the next day. I'm going to sin. I'm going to sin. I'm going to sin. And you can sit there and judge me all day, but guess what? While you're judging me, you'll be sinning. <laughs> so, you may want to have a different view. All right, let's, let's pray. Look, God, we come before you this evening. Lord, we're sinners. We can't save ourselves. We can't keep your law. Your son kept it for us. And it's only in his righteousness that we have hope. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. We praise him for that. And it's in his name we pray. And God's people said,